You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Are we on the right road? Yes. Are we very far down that road? Uh, I'm not convinced that we are. I, I think there's more to be done. I really do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On today's show, Ben shares the story of the Missouri governor who's threatening legal action against a reporter who found a flaw in the state's website. I've got the story of a facial recognition conference in Washington, D.C., and later in the show, we're joined once again by Robert Carolina. He's a lawyer living in the UK, and our conversation focuses on ethics in cybersecurity. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. All right, Ben, we've got a lot to cover this week. Uh, why don't you start things off for us here? My story comes from the Missouri Independent. You know, I read that every single morning. <laughs> right. uh, the story is about the governor of Missouri who is threatening legal action against a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Yes. So what happened, uh, and I know you've talked about this on the CyberWire podcast, a reporter with that newspaper alerted uh, the state that social security numbers of state employees, including teachers and administrators, um, were vulnerable to public exposure because of a flaw on uh, the website of the Missouri Department of Education. Right. Basically, you couldn't uh, clearly see people's social security numbers, but it was visible in the HTML source code. Yeah, and this is a website where you could go and and check the uh, basically the resume of teachers, check their credentials. Right. Um, so checking their resumes and credentials, great. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. That's certainly a, a valuable public service. Revealing their social security numbers, not so great. Right. <laughs> uh, that's a major violation of the public trust. Right. So the reporter for the St. Louis Dispatch was extremely responsible about this and notified the relevant state agency of this security flaw. Before he reported on it. Before he reported on it. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, you know, is exactly what the book tells you to do in these types of situations. Mm -hmm. uh, and the newspaper did not publish the story uh, until the department was able to fix the problem. Of course, after they did fix the problem, they did publish the story. Right. And that raised the ire of the governor of Missouri, uh, Governor Mike Parson. He is threatening legal action against this reporter, um, calling the reporter a hacker and referring the case to the Cole County prosecutor, uh, which is the relevant county where this took place, uh, and also asking the Missouri State Highway Patrol to investigate, saying basically <laughs> um, that this administration stands against hackers, people who try and steal personal information. Uh, I don't think it, it would be too hard for our listeners to agree that this was a wrongheaded uh, move by the governor because... Mm -hmm. The uh, reporter in this situation was extremely responsible. Um, he did not publish the article until the vulnerability uh, had been patched, uh, and uh, he did not publish the article before notifying the relevant state agency. Right. Uh, the Missouri governor is arguing that this qualifies as a hacking. Um, this is unauthorized access into the state system. I think that argument is uh, 
are you how do you say bogus? <laughs> um, <laughs> I figured you're gonna gonna pull out one of your fancy legal words like species or you know. <laughs> I, I could do that, but I think bogus. I was gonna use you know maybe a derivation of a four letter word. <laughs> I see. Okay. Um, but, well, bogus you know, is good. <laughs> we want to keep our the G rating on this podcast. Right. Right. And the reason it's bogus is largely because of the decision in Van Buren v. United States. Now, he would be prosecuted under a Missouri statute, anti-hacking statute. Hmm. Um, But that statute's very similar to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So my guess is the jurisprudence on that statute would would be the same. Okay. And in that statute, uh, in that case rather, in the Van Buren case, as we've talked about, the Supreme Court said you can only be prosecuted uh, if you are in an area— for which you are not authorized to be. So an area that is closed off to the public. It's this gate up, gate down approach. Okay. If you breach that gate, that's hacking. Okay. Uh, You can be prosecuted. Here, um, everything that this reporter discovered was public. Uh, It was all on this website. It was uh, HTML code. Um, It's something that uh, was clearly a put on the website in error by the relevant Missouri Department of Education. Right. Um, but it was up on the website, so it was public. And there, to be clear here, I mean, as, as many uh, folks in, in uh, InfoSec have pointed out, um, basically all you have to do to see this is hit F12 on your keyboard, which is view source. Right. And that's where the social security numbers were revealed. So it wasn't as if you went to the website and the social security number was there for anyone to look at. but it's it's routine to be able to look at a, a website source code. This is not generally hidden. This is this is it's it's there to be seen. Right. If we're going to extend the gate up gate down metaphor, the gate is up and whatever you're trying to view through the gate is clearly visible. Uh all you have to do is, you know, extend your eyelids a little bit. Right. Okay. Uh I completely ran that metaphor into the ground. <laughs> but yeah, I mean everybody has an F12 key. Uh, right, right. So they can they can view the source code. Um there this was not an unauthorized uh access into a state system. Uh the Post Dispatch, the relevant newspaper of course, uh, is standing by its reporter. They posted a statement saying the reporter did the responsible thing by reporting his findings to uh, the Department of Education um, and that this person's not a hacker. A hacker is somebody who breaks into a system with malicious or criminal intent. Yeah. And here there was no such break-in, no breach uh, of security, no malicious intent. I think we have all the evidence we need that there was no malicious intent because he brought it to the attention of the agency. Yeah, let me let me just uh, stop you here for a quick aside because I know we'll get letters. We get letters. Uh, there are there are multiple. Of course, of course, of course, Ben. There are multiple definitions, often contradictory definitions of the word hacker. Yes, everything from someone who is bad at playing golf, uh, but in computers, hacker generally can mean. Someone who is very skilled with computers, someone who's very clever and and, uh, is capable of doing things with computers that mere mortals are not. That is often the industry definition, the the definition shared by professionals. And then there is the also accepted definition of someone who uh, gains access to systems often but not always without permission. And that is the definition that the governor was using here, using the term hacker. I only go down this pathway, and you can tell I'm a little frustrated to even have to do it because uh, lots of people are pedantic about it uh, in in the computer world. And uh, as I said, if I don't mention that, we'll get letters. Right. Uh, You're absolutely (laughs) right. And I think even under that second definition, this is not hacking because it wasn't unauthorized access. Right. It was viewing something that was public. Anybody can view it. They (laughs) weren't – the department was not able to effectively conceal this information from anybody who has an F12 key. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't qualify under that definition of hacking. Yeah. i tell you one thing that I'm still scratching my head about is why did the government – first, how did this – get raised to the level of the governor's attention to the point where the governor of the state of Missouri felt he needed to hold a press conference about this. At no point did, did uh, you know, cooler heads prevail and someone say, uh, listen, Gov, uh, you probably, this is not a good idea. You, you probably don't want to do this, right? I, I don't get it. Yeah. Um, one yeah. of the reasons I don't get it is, you know, nothing against the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, but 
how many people would have actually read that article and how public a story would that actually have been? This mm-hmm. this becomes a local story that generates very little interest if it's simply published in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the governor doesn't come out and recommend criminal referral. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Officials at the uh, at the school board have thanked the Post-Dispatch for their responsible disclosure uh, and we don't feel that any information has been leaked Everybody wins. Yeah, I'd skip over that article and go right to the you know sports section and see how the St. Louis Blues are doing. <laughs> right, because right. it's just not it's not really interesting information. Yeah, um, the, this is kind of the perfect example of the Streisand effect, mm-hmm. um, where you're drawing uh, in in an effort to conceal something, you're drawing attention to it. Yeah, uh, and I, I think that's exactly what happened with the governor here. I mean, I think you know to 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 be fair to the governor, he wants to disincentivize. Citizens, journalists within the state of Missouri uh, gaining unauthorized access to state systems. Yeah. Um, but that that's just not what he's doing. No, uh, and in, he's in doubled down. He has not backed off. He has doubled down. I think it I think the, the opportunity here is for uh the prosecutors to let the governor say what the governor wants to say, let some time pass and then choose not to prosecute, right? I think that's what's going to happen. I think we're going to get, you know, several weeks uh, or months down the line, this county prosecutor will say, we don't have enough evidence to, uh, you know, initiate legal proceedings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We'll all forget about this. Um, But it it certainly was a curious move by the governor to to be so public about this, especially Mm -hmm. when... The facts here, to my mind, are, are relatively obvious and, and one-sided. Yeah. I don't know if this governor is, you know, termed out or, or whatever, but boy, uh, if I were running against him, I know where I'd start my my campaign ads, right? Fun fact. <laughs> he is a governor. Uh, he was the lieutenant governor, and he took over because the previous governor had to resign as part of a sex scandal. Oh, so, oh my. Yeah. When, when you fall into that position, you know— I, I would play it super conservative. <laughs> Just enjoy well, the fact that you've become governor and don't try and rattle cages too yeah, much. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, mm. Yeah, I, I suspect this one will just fade away, but I think it's a good reminder just uh, because, you know, here's the other aspect of this is that it's such an easy target. We It's so easy for us to, um, you know, punch up at some of these politicians who, for for not knowing about, technical issues. Right. Right? It, it they and and this isn't helpful. Right. This makes it so much easier to do that to say see look look see here's another one. <sighs> you think they would try and at least have an advisor who could tell them look this is not the type of issue uh for which you should hold a press conference. Right. You're in the wrong here. Um this is this action was not criminal. We should not be referring it to county prosecutors. Just let it go. Yeah. Um, and seems like such an advisor was not present in the office this week. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in our show notes, of course. Uh, my story this week comes from Business Insider, and it's uh, written by Caroline Haskins. Uh, and it's titled, I attended a top surveillance conference in Washington, a bizarre experience in which industry insiders lamented being under attack. Um, now, Ben, of course, facial recognition is a common topic for you and I here mm-hmm. on this show. Um, so there was a surveillance technology event. It's called Connect ID, and it was uh, in Washington, D.C. First of the- all, where was our invitation to this conference? I know, right? If I- you would have just, you know, invited us and given us a nice breakfast or lunch, we, we wouldn't have to comment on, on this article. But <laughs> All right, okay. So what you're saying is we could totally be bought off by just a, a delicious meal? Yeah, I mean, the meal would have to be really good. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. Some good swag. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. I attended the surveillance conference, and all I got, I got was, was this lousy t-shirt, t-shirt yeah. and, my, exactly. and my face scanned for, yeah. the re- for forever time. Uh, I, it was funny. I was thinking about this conference. Like, as everybody walks in, does it say, welcome, Bob Smith? <laughs> welcome, Jane yeah, Doe. Exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, we know exactly who you are. Right. No need for name tags here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Nobody has to wear a name tag. Um, but the, the, the reporter here, uh, Caroline uh, Haskins, uh, describes the event. And, and I think it's very interesting from the point of view of how the folks who sell facial identification, the folks who are in this business perceive themselves and how they're reacting to other organizations' perceptions of them. 
Uh, there's a quote here from John Mears, who is the chairman of the International Biometrics and Identity Association. He says, facial recognition is under attack, and he encourages attendees to educate the public and lawmakers about misconceptions. He said uh, he listed several myths such as face technology is all the same. Face recognition uses or face recognition use cases are similar and should all be banned. And wait for it, Ben, facial recognition tech is biased and disadvantages people of color. Yikes. <laughs> I know. Um, so, I, you know, what do you make of this? I, I guess you, if you have a group of people who are like-minded, and of course they're in the business of promoting, their paychecks depend on the acceptance of this technology. Uh, I guess it's not surprising the, the angle that they're going to come at this but it's interesting to me that they label it misinformation uh, rather than something we need to address and and perhaps do better at or fix. Right. I mean, I understand it from a human perspective. You know, everybody's got to eat. They're trying to sell these systems. Right. Um, and they're frustrated that people are very distrustful of facial recognition systems. Mm-hmm. We've seen that reflected in public opinion polling. Um, you know, what I would have done uh, armed with that information is try to uh, either improve the algorithmic formulas uh, to address some of these problems to make sure that these systems are not racially biased or, you know, uh, have a more effective public relations campaign to try and educate the public as to the benefits of facial recognition systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think we have to keep in mind that this event is very insular. Uh, it's made up of people who are on the inside, people who work for these companies, and people who work for agencies who employ this technology. Uh, and so I think they are kind of cut off from the layman's view uh, about this technology. Um, and I think it's because they work in it every day, I think it's almost humorous to them that normal people see this as, quote, dystopian sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, there was apparently a slide presented in one of the presentations where somebody showed uh, images from the Terminator, RoboCop, Blade Runner, Minority Report, saying, you know, everybody thinks that uh, we th- our technology belongs in one of those movies. It's now taken on that cultural uh, significance. Um, but the real world isn't science fiction, uh, and that's just not how these how these systems work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, my take on it is I, I do think you're in a very insular community. I think once you're in that community and you're constantly talking to other people who are part of the industry, you're talking to vendors or you're talking to local pl- uh, law enforcement offices, Customs and Border Protection, where they're in this world, they're either selling or, or buying these systems – you're cut off from the the public, the common perception as to what these systems are. But the thing is, the public perception matters um, because ultimately we're going to talk, you know, that facial recognition evidence is going to be used in legal proceedings and there's going to be a jury of one's peers. Uh, and that jury is not going to be made up of uh, representatives from Clearview AI. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ultimately, you do need to build trust with the public. Um, and, you know, I think... They can let off some steam at a conference, but ultimately uh, it's incumbent upon the industry to change these practices. Um, if you are going to employ facial recognition, you have to address some of these racial disparities and not try to uh, sweep them under the rug. Yeah, they talk about a document that came from Clearview AI, who of course has been in the news um, for their facial recognition systems. And uh, it's a document they released back in August that was titled Facial Recognition Myths. Uh, And Clearview said, uh, facial recognition technology is not surveillance uh, because it happens after the fact, not in real time. Man, talk about shifting the goalposts there. Yeah. And I don't – I mean to me that – I don't even think that's true. No, I. it's really not. There's nothing about – I mean surveillance is surveillance, whether it's forward-looking or – you know, employs data collection from the past. That's true in a practical sense and true in a legal sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, going back and looking at somebody's cell site location information, that's looking at the past, but that's also very clearly surveillance. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think of the like the use case, let's say, uh, security in a retail store, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's going to be real time. I mean, what, what's the point of these systems... If if I'm a retailer and I want to know, does this uh, person walking into my store 
trouble? Is this someone who is who has been caught stealing from my store before, or from the store down the street, or you know who knows where? Right. Right. Like, and, and and as I'm saying this, I'm I'm getting sort of the creeps about it because uh, of all the things we talk about here, but. Um, Real time information on that—that's what I want. Right, I want to know. Right. Right, I don't want to know after the fact. You know, oh, let's let's go through and see. Was that person who, you know, that's not how. That's not the goal of any of this sort of stuff. Yeah, the faster the better. Yeah, that certainly seemed to be a misplaced comment. Yeah, I mean, I do think being. Tra- I've been to a lot of these types of conferences, mm-hmm. um, and. I, I most of the conferences I've been to have been in the context of emergency management. Mm. And Homeland Security, there is a lot of jargon thrown around. There is a lot of letting off steam. There are a lot of things that are said that, you know, people wouldn't repeat publicly outside the context of a conference. Sure. Um, So I'm somewhat sympathetic there. Uh, You know, they probably didn't know that a business insider reporter was going to be, you know, writing a story about this. And I I get that. They had their guard down. Right. That's why, you know, they decided, somebody decided to put up dystopian sci-fi movie images in a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. Um, But there is the broader issue here, which is, are you going to get defensive uh, and try and blame the public for their own misconceptions? Or are you going to recognize the problem that you have uh, surveillance technology and it is surveillance technology that is flawed and uh, unless it is ameliorated, is going to break the public trust. Are you actually going to go out and try to address those problems? Yeah. Um, and, you know, we weren't at the whole conference. Maybe there were some panels where um, people did express uh, some of those viewpoints. Um, but it's certainly discouraging reading this article. Yeah. You know, my take on this, too, is that, like, I, I don't think all facial recognition technology should be dismissed out of hand. I think there are useful purposes for it in law enforcement. But as it just comes up over and over again, (laughs) like my take is get a warrant. Right. Right. Convince a judge that this is something you need to do. Make your case in front of a judge and then, okay, have at it. But I am not a fan of, uh, you know, police cars driving around with uh, video cameras on them and tagging everyone they see. I this I, I, I just have a problem with that. Right. Right. And I think most people's objections with this uh, are the fact that these technologies are employed and used by law enforcement without any individualized suspicion. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just facial recognition. I mean, how many episodes have we spent talking about the Baltimore spy plane? Right. Uh, or other forms of surveillance where um, information is collected in bulk, um, it's not based on individualized suspicion, and it's a dragnet. You're picking up images of hundreds of thousands of people who are completely innocent. Yeah. Um, and until you wrestle with that problem, you know, I think there are proper law enforcement justifications for using this technology. But until you wrestle with that problem, I don't think it's worthwhile to, you know, sit back and complain that the public has all these misconceptions. Yeah. In my view. Yeah. If they were to invite me to the conference and give me, you know, some good swag and... <laughs> you should be a speaker, Ben. I know. I know. <laughs> then maybe maybe we'll feel differently. They, they didn't, they'd invite you once. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't think I would get the, the repeat invite. That's right, for exactly. sure. We're not bringing him back. <laughs> yeah. I think I get negative reviews on, right, on my right. presentation. Fair enough. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story. Again, it's from uh, Business Insider, written by Caroline Haskins. Uh, Interesting stuff for sure. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. 
Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. All right, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of uh, speaking with Robert Carolina once again. Uh, He is an attorney uh, living over in the UK, and our conversation focuses on ethics in cybersecurity. Here's my conversation with Robert Carolina. This conjecture came about when I was asked to write about ethics in cybersecurity for, uh, you know, for Cyboc, which is a subject you and I have spoken about before. I was writing about law, and they said you should also write about ethics. Well, the Merman-Borgnine conjecture is this. Uh, it comes from Ethel Merman and her marriage to Ernest Borgnine, and when she and they were married for I think all of about forty-five days. Right, right. <laughs> in, an infamously tempestuous relationship. They were both, uh, let's say, people of very strong opinions, and it just did not last at all. Well, when Ethel Merman went to write her autobiography, it came to the chapter which was entitled My Marriage to Ernest Borgnine. And then you turn the page and there's nothing. It just goes straight to the next chapter. So for me, the Merman-Borgnine conjecture is this. The Merman-Borgnine conjecture is this. If you're going to write about cybersecurity ethics, there's really nothing worth writing about. And so I, I seriously considered turning in a first draft uh, of Cybok that had a section on ethics with nothing underneath it and then moved immediately on to section 14. Hmm. Um, that was plan A. I abandoned <laughs> I abandoned plan A because I had a feeling that the people who commissioned Cybok would not have a good sense of humor about the Merman Borgnine <laughs> conjecture. Uh, indeed, some of your listeners will have to look up who is Ethel Merman or who was Ethel Merman. They might remember Ernest Borgnine, but when they right. do, I hope they will look up SpongeBob SquarePants because now the character of Mermaid Man will be even funnier. So anyway, that's, that's a little <laughs> Easter egg for whoever wants to look it up. Right, right. So then I went to Plan B, and Plan B was okay. Well, let's write something about ethics. Well, well, what can you find? For that matter, why did I come up with the the Merman Borgnine conjecture? Why did I think there was nothing worth writing about? Hmm. And, and that is because I really searched out there in, in the marketplace for what I would describe as any kind of guidance material that would really help a cybersecurity practitioner answer really difficult questions. And frankly, there wasn't really very much at all that I thought was valuable. Now, hmm. don't get me wrong. There were a lot of ethics statements out there that because for some reason there's, you know, there's not just one organization that purports to represent uh, security practitioners. There seem to be lots and lots of them. They just grow up like – they sprout up like weeds in the back garden or something like that. But most of them that had ethics statements, the ethics statements, they had these, you know, these kind of like bromides like, you know, all right, well, principle one, first do new wrong or or don't be evil or, Mm -hmm. you know, your job is to protect this or, you know, protect. And it's like, but, but nothing in there that you could really use as a teaching tool, certainly nothing in there that I could use to advise someone who is trying to figure out what's the ethical thing to do in a, in a certain circumstance. You know, things like comply with the law, be aware of all legal obligations. And that was the other. And, of course, some of the older codes, that's all they focused on was the law. They weren't right. focusing on ethics. They were focusing on the law. If you go to even older codes, the law that they're most focused on is uh, copyright. Don't steal software. Mm. So, mm-hmm. so the oldest ones mm-hmm. were don't steal software. Then the more recent ones were don't spy on people because data protection. Um, mm-hmm. And then comply with law. Well, great. How how do I navigate some really difficult problems on that answer? You don't. And mm. that really concerned me. Let me tell you the reason I'm concerned. I'm concerned yeah. because security practitioners – live in a world, cybersecurity practitioners live in a world where they operate using a special set of skills. And no, that's not a callback to Liam Neeson. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like being an airline pilot or a, a, a physician or a surgeon. You know, it's a very special set of technical skills. Secondly, 
people work outside the glare of public supervision. If you're going to do a job as a cybersecurity professional, you're very often in a dark room someplace without anyone looking over your shoulder. Your client might not even see what you're doing or whatever you're doing is invisible and there's no one in the community who can see you as you do it. Third thing, people who do cybersecurity are placed in a really unique position of trust. Very often a security practitioner, especially if they're working in-house, will be given privileged access to a whole lot of systems. And once that happens, a very uncomfortable thing begins to happen. And that is the practitioner is put in a position of asymmetric power with respect to their client, with respect to their employer. And that's just a fancy way of saying if you've got the keys to the kingdom and someone honks you off, you can say, well, you know, if you don't do what I say, I'll delete all your stuff or you'll never find it again. Right. You know, there's two ways to have ransom. There's two ways to get yourself in a situation of ransomware. One is to be hit with, uh, you know, with the Trojan horse that comes onto your machine. The other is to have an unethical cybersecurity practitioner who decides they're going to hold all your data for ransom. Before we had cybersecurity people, were there other people in organizations who were in a similar sort of situation? Someone whose um, capabilities perhaps, you know, outstripped what they should have been? Well, it's not so much outstripped what they should have been. I mean, because there's a lot of people who work in society who are in a position where they could have asymmetric power over clients. Mm-hmm. You look at any of the traditional professions – Lawyers, medical doctors, uh, for that matter, electricians. You know, what I mean, what, what do all these groups have in common? And that is they're doing something. They're providing a service to people who don't really understand how the service works. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with clients who don't necessarily know a good practitioner from a bad practitioner. And you're dealing with a circumstance if somebody doesn't have a strong ethical compass, they can really do a lot of harm to members of the public. Coming up as a lawyer, I mean, in your training, in, in your, uh, you know, getting your law degree, to what degree, um, how often were ethics discussed? Is this, is this a part of the curriculum, uh, you know, to get where you are today? I studied law in the United States back in the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. And I went to Georgetown Law. And at that time, the American Bar Association mandated that every a person getting a legal education in the U.S. had to study, had to take a specific course on professional responsibilities, legal ethics. It wasn't a gigantic course, but it was a course. And we studied, you know, the legal canons of, uh, of responsibility ethics, all that all that kind of good stuff. For that matter, we were required to take the multi-state, um, what is it, the multi-state ethics exam or something like that. Yeah. And if you want the and if you want the short version of of legal ethics to try to get you past the ethics exam, rule number one: don't steal money from clients. Mm. There's a lot of well developed ethics guidance in the legal profession, and let's be candid: it's because lawyers are really in a position where it's really easy to steal money from clients. It's really easy to mess them over. Okay. Mm-hmm. The more you find this kind of asymmetric power balance between professional and client, I, my hypothesis is the more you find regulation in place. Same with medical practitioners. I mean, who mm-hmm. can do more damage to a human client, a human patient than a medical practitioner? I'm not saying that's what they do. I'm not saying that's what they're trying to do. I'm saying that in the past and in, in cases where people don't have an ethical guidance, don't have some kind of a compass, terrible things can happen. Now, Are cybersecurity practitioners, do they have that much asymmetric power? Well, not necessarily, but then again, the power that they do have is is significant. I'll I'll let you in on something. One of the reasons I'm so hot about this, okay? Hmm. As a practicing lawyer who advises people in relation to cybersecurity matters, I've had more than a few circumstances over the past few decades where clients have, in effect, been held to ransom by an unethical practitioner. Hmm. It happens. Yeah. I don't know how often it happens because invariably um, organizations, particularly small or medium-sized enterprises, uh, they would rather just go along to get along and try to get past the individual who's making their life a bit difficult. Um, But it's it's a terrible spot for, for people to be in. So now... Again, the practitioners that I've dealt with 
over the years, the cybersecurity practitioners that I've dealt with over the years have almost universally been good people. Mm -hmm. I've been happy to deal with them. I've been proud to work with them and just it's been wonderful to support them. And some of them think very deeply about these kinds of things. But that's not everybody, okay? There are some bad people out there. The ones I'm most worried about, though, the thing that gets me exercised about this, are practitioners who want to do the right thing, but they're genuinely conflicted in terms of understanding what the right thing is. Hmm. So when I went to look for usable codes of ethics, I'll tell you one that I did find which was really useful, and I have to give them full credit for this, is the Association for Computing Machinery, the ACM, their Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct. They completely revised that thing in 2018. I mean, the previous uh, version was like 1992. The ACM has been around for a long, long time. Uh, and they had a code of ethics that was out in 1992. They revised it in 2018. What's the difference between 1992 and 2018? The 1992 code, uh, you'd search a long time to find the word internet anywhere in there. Right. You get to 2018, and the overwhelming majority of every conflicting problem they're talking about has to do with online and connected systems. Hmm. And so to their credit, they seem to have invested a tremendous amount of effort in coming forth with a with a code that's specifically built around a skill set. Okay, you people who do computing machinery for a living, you know, computer engineers, software developers, all those kinds, anyone who joins the ACM, think about their skill set. If you're going to use this very important skill set, which can be used to harm people, which can be used to help people, here's our guide. Great. It's wonderful. It's a lot of case studies and all that sort of thing. The other one that I found a few years ago when I wrote this thing was the Crest Code of Conduct for Crest Qualified Individuals. Now, that one came out of the UK. The organization Crest was originally developed as a self-regulatory body for people doing penetration testing. Hmm. And that was interesting because their code of conduct was built around, not in part around a specific set of skills, but also in part around a business process. So there's more in that code that talks about business engagement and being good to your client and and all that kind of stuff. The ACM code doesn't really seem to dig into those types of issues too terribly much, the sorts of things that working professionals worry about every day. For instance, in law school, one of the biggest things was, can you sue your client to collect a bill? Is that a conflict of interest? Turns out it's not a conflict of interest if you're trying to collect your bill. So Hmm. surprise, surprise. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and, and so, so, the, so say the code of ethics written by lawyers, right? Well, exactly. Well, you know, you got, I hate to say it, but you know, F, you know law doesn't come free, man. Right. You know, it's right. like, I, I sure, wish, I wish sure. it did. I wish it did. You know, so ethic and, and this is the other problem. Ethics don't come for free either. Yeah. Now, the, and, and now we hit a serious systemic challenge. Um, and again, all right, time for controversy. There's no money in ethics, by which I mean people don't get rich talking about and developing codes of ethics. At least no one I've met. I mean, if they are, please give me a call. I want to find yeah. out how they, I want to find out what they're doing. Um, because a lot of people, I think, and this is, and I think this is a perception issue, and I would love cybersecurity practitioners to look at this a little bit differently. I think a lot of people perceive ethics as a threat to their ability to provide services. Because everyone says, oh, do you, want the, do you want this to be an ethical profession? Oh, yes, yes, we'll vote for ethics. Okay, well, let's sit down and actually write very specific rules about what's allowed and what's not. Oh, well, you see, now people start to get a little bit nervous. Why? A code of ethics reduces degrees of freedom. To what degree, what I would describe as the relatively recent professionalization of cybersecurity, you know, drifting away from what I would say, you know, the first 20 years or so when we had these rock star practitioners who no one understood what they were doing or how they did it and, and, um, you know, so um, they could pretty much operate any way they wanted to. But I think we're at a stage now where there is professionalism. And so with that comes more standardization. 
first of all, do you think I'm on the right track there? Do you think that is the reality of where we are? I think you're on the right road. I'm just not sure how far down that road we are. Mm. I mean, people have been talking about the professionalization of cybersecurity uh, for all the last 30 years I've been involved with it. And everyone keeps saying, oh, we're making progress. Well, I think progress has been limited in part because people have been so busy trying to do cybersecurity, uh, in part because trying to take a very careful focus on how to develop a code of conduct or a code of ethics takes an incredible amount of time, in part because the infrastructure itself is continually changing and um, you know, who, who, it's hard to develop good case studies if the, if the problems keep changing. Uh, and in part because of just the massive influx of people into the space. You know, 25 years ago, the people I was meeting who were doing cybersecurity, they tended to fall into a couple of odd categories. Either, oh, this is the person who used to work for the government. Oh, 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 okay. So the, so they did, yeah, yeah, one of those guys. Oh, okay, great, I, I get it. And who's mm-hmm. this person? Oh, that's the person who developed um, a cryptographic product cryptographic products because they're a crypto expert. Oh, 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 one, one of those types. Who's that person? Uh, oh, that, that person's kind of odd. He, he, he got his start um, doing computer security for a large, uh, for a large school system uh, in, in North America back before anyone knew that uh, students might be hacking in to try to change their grades. Uh, oh, that's interesting. And who? what about this other person? Well, that person used to be a deputy sheriff in wherever and was put in charge of. So, I mean, they were, they were mm. all sort of one-offs. Yeah. They were all one-offs. And now there's a huge number of people coming into the space. And that's, and it takes a while to, to, it takes a little while to settle, I think. Is, is some sort of, you know, certification or standards body is, is that a solution here? Do we need a, a cyber AMA or a cyber FDA or you know some, something like that to, uh, to get us on an even playing field? Well, that's an interesting question because that immediately leads to this problem. How do we define a cybersecurity profession? What is it exactly? And you can see this when you look through Cybok, by the way. One of the reasons Cybok has so many different sections is because there are so many things people do that are labeled as or perceived as the practice of cybersecurity. You know, hmm. product development, penetration testing, risk assessment, risk management, cryptography development, applied cryptography. I mean, you know, it goes on and on and on and on and on. Now, here's the thought question. Here's the really hard thought question. Let's assume for a moment that you're a government that wants to regulate the cybersecurity profession, right? How do you do any type of professional regulation? Well, you license people. Okay, I get that. Mm -hmm. In order for the licensing to make sense, how do you encourage people to get licenses or how do you know who has to get a license? Answer, you define in law a series of things that no one is allowed to do unless they have a license. Here's the question. What goes on that list? Yeah, well, and, you know, what what I'm thinking of as you're describing this is, uh, you know, for example, where I live here in the States, um, if I want to have someone come in and do electrical work in my house, they have to be a licensed electrician. But if Mm -hmm. I want to do that work myself, ah, that's good, no problem. It's fine. Yep. Right? Yep. Well, it's <laughs> so what does because, that mean? <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of these things, I mean, law is the same way. If you want to advocate in, in a courtroom on behalf of another person for money, you have to have a license. Yeah. If you want to represent yourself, um, you know, with some weird exceptions, there's no rule against that. Or in mm. some edge cases, if you want to volunteer to represent someone without being paid, there are circumstances where that's allowed if you're not a lawyer as well. Hmm. So – yeah, this idea of are you doing for yourself or are you doing for others is is one way to to slice that. But I mean, when I first posed this question to someone more than a decade ago, I, I had one thing that I think immediately comes to mind, and that's penetration testing. And that's because it seems to me that's a task undertaken by cybersecurity practitioners that if it goes wrong – has the opportunity to create disproportional harm to client. 
if someone doesn't know what they're doing, they can really screw up a client very, very badly. Mm-hmm. So I thought that would probably be a good candidate for um, for, for licensure or regulation first. And I find it interesting that one of the more successful professional bodies in the UK, in fact, was Crest, and they were, in fact, started specifically with the idea of regulating, uh, self-regulating uh, penetration testers. Now, they, they've branched hmm. out into other areas as well, and you can read all about them. Uh, but So, yeah, but this idea of what would be on the prohibited list, I mean, you're going to say, are you going to say risk assessment? I, I don't think so. I mean, because you got, that, that's just a business process. Reporting on risk is something that uh, people with an MBA do every day. Well, okay, so so what's it going to be? And other people have suggested to me that on the list should be specifying security systems. Okay, well, what do you mean by a security system? Any IT with a security component? Uh, so so actually that, that list of what is not allowed is to me the more interesting question that I very rarely see addressed. Hmm. Is there a desire within the industry to address this? Is there even recognition that this is an issue? I think there's a growing recognition that it's an issue, but I think that the recognition is very uneven. Um, I think part of it – well, let me, let me highlight another area which I think may have caused or, or contributed to the problem. Let me hmm. highlight another area that I think may have contributed to the problem. And that is a lot of people who work in cybersecurity learned their trade. They learned the tradecraft while working in government service. And there's nothing wrong with that. I celebrate those folks. I know a lot of them. You know, they worked for a security service or for the police or whatever it happens to be. And they were taught, you know, again, a very special set of skills. Yeah. Um, when I find that when cybersecurity practitioners, at least in the UK where I'm most familiar, when they work within a government agency of some type, those government agencies tend to have extremely rigorous, very thought-provoking and very thoughtful frameworks that they use to answer questions like, what should we do or what should we not do? In fact, some of the most rigorous analysis I've ever seen done by that have come from reports that I've, of, that I've had from people who work in, uh, well, you know, the, 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 the big super secret agencies. Okay, right. We, we right. all know who they are. Right. And I've been very impressed with the, with the focus that they, they bring. I think the challenge comes that when someone who's learned all of their tradecraft working in public service then leaves – they have all of their tradecraft they bring with them. They know how to do the things. What they no longer have is a large pyramid of decision-making and recourse to guidance and, you know, a senior person of this level or a senior minister of that level or, you know, a warrant from this organization or, you know, it, it, all of that sort of surround has disappeared. Hmm. So some of them, I mean, if they go and work for, let's say, one of the big international accounting firms, you know, one of the one of the when I was in when I first studied accounting, it was the big eight. Now I guess it's the final four. Um, <laughs> you know, what, if if you go and work in that type of environment, because they are regulated professionals, they already have an enormous surrounding framework that they have to use to assess what they will or will not do for a client or to a client, for that matter. When they go away into other types of organizations that don't have that regulated surround, I think I feel the, – the sadness I feel, the tragedy I feel are for the people who are looking for answers to what should I or shouldn't I do, but they find themselves working in an organization where no one seems to have a really good answer to that. Oh, you know, we go to Jim, we go to Sally. They always seem to have a good answer. Um, but they're kind of, you kind of get the impression that maybe they're making it up as they go along. And I think that, I think that's a tragedy. I, I want those people to have clear guidance and I'm hoping that we're moving closer to a day when they will. Ben, what do you think? First of all, good to have a friend of the show uh, overseas. I'm glad uh, we were able to speak with him again. Yeah. I think ethics is just completely under-discussed in the context of cybersecurity. Hmm. I think that problem is particularly acute among lawyers and attorneys. We talk about law, what the law is and not about you know ethically 
what's uh, what's proper uh, and um, you know what are ways uh, from a public policy perspective to make sure that the use of surveillance tools, the use of um, cybersecurity is in the public interest. Hmm. Now you're you're a professor. I mean, you you teach the the next generation. Is this something you touch on? It is, and I think ethics is you know, going to start to be more of a part of a broader cybersecurity curriculum. It took a long time to integrate law and policy into cybersecurity curricula. Hmm. Um, I think we've finally started to penetrate that in master's programs. You'll see classes on the technology side, and then you'll have to take a course uh, relating to law and policy. And in more and more programs uh, across the country, I think cyber ethics is going to be um, a required course as well, and and I think it should be. You know, we have ethics courses for all different types of domains, practices. Uh, Mr. Carolina talked about ethics in the legal context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to take an, an ethics exam uh, in most states uh, to to qualify for the bar. Um, in the state of Maryland, you had to go to, to a full eight-hour training in Annapolis. I know from experience uh, where they <laughs> tell you uh, don't steal money from clients and say it in about, you know, 20,000 separate ways. But I do think right. it's it's critically important, um, especially to maintain the credibility of the industry, mm. um, to know that, um, you know, people are keeping the public interest in mind, thinking about ethical ways of handling other people's data in the interest of protecting their privacy and ensuring their security. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, again, thanks to Robert Carolina for joining us. Always a pleasure to have him uh, on the show. I always look forward to chatting with him. Uh, Always leaves me uh, thinking about the things we discussed long after the conversation is done. So always a treat. And I hope uh, folks in the audience enjoy uh, his presence as well. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. (laughs) 